Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. This week on Indie Matters, I go to UNR to chat with the director of the Nevada State Public Health Laboratory, Dr. Mark Pandori, for the second time in two weeks. Last time we talked, there were only a few cases in the state. Since then, they've ramped up their testing significantly, and Dr. Pandori walks me through that. After that, we hear from Paul Enos, the CEO of the Nevada Trucking Association. Reporter Michelle Rendells and you talk to him about keeping the supply chain moving at a time like this. And at the end of the episode, replacing our normally fun segment, intern Kristen Leonard tells me about a resource guide that readers can use to help them find resources for food, welfare, public benefits for non-citizens, filing for unemployment, and a lot more. But before any of that, we want to give you a quick update on what's going on with the coronavirus in Nevada. When we last published this podcast, there were 11 cases of the novel coronavirus in Nevada. As we tape this now on Thursday night, there are 96. In order to help curb the spread of the virus, Governor Steve Sisolak ordered all non-essential businesses closed Tuesday night. But while the casinos and hotels of the Las Vegas Strip have gone dark, many businesses, all strapped for cash amid a pandemic-driven economic meltdown, have bucked the governor and stayed open regardless. Meanwhile, reported cases of the coronavirus have continued to crop up across the state. Elko confirmed its first case Thursday, while other new cases were reported at Nellis Air Force Base, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, and even a McCarran Airport control tower. For our complete coverage of the coronavirus, including a live blog covering all the most recent developments, and, like we mentioned, a thorough resource guide, head to the NevadaIndependent.com. All right, and now on to our interview with the director of the Nevada State Public Health Lab, Dr. Mark Pandori. So just, I mean, we talked 12 days ago, you know, is this where you expected to see this 12 days ago? Well, the only change is that certain of the materials that are needed to test are becoming, are growing into a situation where they're in very short supply. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't anticipate some of the shortages that we're seeing now in terms of some of the ancillary reagents that are required to run the lab test. So while the availability of test kits, so to speak, from CDC is high, some of the materials that are needed to use those kits is running rather low, and that was not expected 12 days ago. And uh, But certainly now that testing is ramped up and the criteria are wide and there's a lot of demand for testing, there is a shortage of many supplies associated with testing, not even necessarily test kits, as you hear quite often. Did you expect to see this many this much uh, change, you know? I mean, they're closing casinos, This is, and people are getting laid off, it's just economically, and then also just... You're asking if I saw that in my crystal ball 12? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't see anything in my crystal ball 12 days ago except uh, more fog. Um, no, I'm not going to say what I predicted 12 days ago or what I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly did not think we were going to be in a better situation. 12 days later, um, I knew that these things tend to get worse before they get better. But when you look at some of the things you just alluded to, like closing casinos or closing restaurants or creating, you know, shelter in place orders, those kinds of things, as you're hearing from around the United States, the thing that's the most important to recognize about that is as scary as it seems, or maybe you're upset because it's you can't do certain things that you wanted to do. It's really, you have to say, what do we have to fight this? 
Okay. And at the same time, the converse is what don't we have? Let's look at that. We don't have a vaccine and we don't have drugs and we don't have great, even yet, we don't even have spectacular surveillance data, which is to say we know how much is really out there yet. So when you recognize that we don't have those things, we have to concentrate really firmly on what we do have. And that is we have testing and that can help us determine what's going on to some degree and who needs, you know, what. And we also then have these sorts of social tactics that we utilize, like closing things, shutting down group events. It's all we got, you know. Uh, and the thing about it is that, that, well, we have that and we have things like coughing into your elbow and making sure that if you're unwell, you don't go to work. But now that's just being enforced in a different way. But again, think about this. So when you consider what we don't have and we look at what we do have, now it's the job of the public to do the public health. The job of the public doing the public health means follow, comply with what you're hearing. You know, it matters. Infectious diseases are spread by people being close and touching other people or, or getting bodily fluids on other people. It's a very, very reasonable expectation that if we do that less, we're going to limit the spread of the, of the virus. So right now, the thing is that the public has the opportunity to do public health. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that we're empowered, but we really are. It's really just us that can do this now. Okay. Um, the Southern Nevada Public Health Laboratory said that it was out of extraction kits um, and was requesting help from, from the state lab. Have you been able to provide them with, with that? Yeah, we're currently, we received specimens this morning from Southern Nevada Public Health Lab, and they're currently in the process of being tested. And we anticipate more will come as, as a result of that outage. So, yeah, yeah, extraction reagents are in limiting supply. And um, everybody is, uh, you know, working with CDC and FDA to see what our alternatives are. Okay. How many test kits and extraction kits does do, do you guys have? And then how many does the state have? Do you know those numbers? Uh, right now, it's difficult to answer. Um, we're the state public health lab for Nevada, and we have a capacity to continue to test for several more days in, into next week. But I'm hesitant to put a, a number on it or a day because... Right now, what's changing is the availability of new brands of chemicals and reagents that we can use. So if I say at this moment we can test them to next week, that sounds grave. But in fact, the landscape is changing so quickly, it looks like we'll be able to tack and adapt and use other things. So right now, our capacity to test is pretty, is pretty high right now. Um, but how long it will last depends on how and what other vendors we can use to, to buy things. Okay. When do you expect to see more more tests come in from the CDC? Oh well, from the CDC, see that's the or, or from private vendors for that well, matter. Well, see, it's very this is very complicated, and I think I think one of the biggest uh, issues with talking about number of test kits is that test kits that are complicated. Yeah, it's, this is a little bit like if you said to me, "I need to make um, brownies." All right, like a, a test, you know, I, what is it that you need? You need a brownie mix, and the CDC can send that brownie mix out, no problem, and they've done a very good job of that. But let's say that to make that brownie mix, you need eggs and you need butter. Well, if they stop making eggs, how are you going to make the brownies? See? So CDC has been really good at providing brownie mix, but you need a lot of other things to make brownies. 
further the analogy. But okay. um, so it really depends on if we get more eggs and butter. Okay, and and so when the CDC sends you a test kit, you're not getting everything you need to test something. You're getting kind of the the base to test someone. You're getting you're getting what we call the analyte specific reagents, and um, those are the reagents that are specific to the COVID nineteen disease entity SARS CoV two. So yeah, uh, that's what they're providing. Where where are you getting the the so called eggs and butter? Well, uh, there's a myriad of companies that provide those things. Um, there's a lot of vendors. What we're what's happening is the FDA is approving these vendors one by one, mm. and it's not going very quickly. So now there should be some changes coming in the next few days where how these decisions get made might change dramatically, but um, as the vendors expand, uh, opportunities to provide testing will expand. And so this is still chugging along quite well. Do you have any models or numbers to expect to see how many cases the state may see? That's uh, well outside my um, profession and my career to project. Um, <laughs> one thing I will say to you is, as you do more testing in a situation like this, you will find more cases. Um, the shape of that upward curve, I don't know the shape of it or at what rate or if this will grow exponentially or anything further, but I would not be in a position to say. But as you test more, expect to find more cases for certain. Um, how many people have you guys tested so far? Well, we have a lot of testing going on today. We've tested 625 human beings, and that, I mean patients, um, uh, so far here at the Public Health Lab. Okay. Is, is there a backlog of tests? No. Um, everything that came in yesterday has been tested so far. We have many, many specimens today, and the expectation is that we'll get through at least half of them. But there will be testing that will go into tomorrow. We'll be working into the night to get those tested. But the volume has been so high that we can no longer guarantee turning result around the same day we get a specimen. However, tomorrow we expect to get those out. But again, tomorrow we're probably going to get a lot more to test. As so well. if, if you have the same amount coming in, you'll, you expect to see a backlog at some point? I don't know because we're changing our personnel here in the lab to move to more shifts. And so there is a possibility that the rate of testing will change. So I'm unable to comment or provide an answer on it, whether or not there'll be a backlog. Okay. It's about uh, three or four hours to do one test? Correct. Is, who, who's being tested? Is it just people that have symptoms um, or have a history of exposure or being in an infected place? I think you pretty much nailed it okay. <laughs> um, right then. Um, what? But it's an opportunity to, to remind that testing resources and medical resources are limited. And this is not a time to go and get a COVID-19 test just because you feel like it, or to go get a COVID-19 test because you're kind of curious whether you might have COVID-19. If you're well and, um, and your family is well, then you should be complying with whatever the government's currently asking you to do. They're not trying to scare or to make life inconvenient. We're trying to use the only tool that we have um, to fight this from a public health perspective. And um, that means just staying home. And if you're well, you don't need a COVID-19 test because these resources should be reserved for people, as you just articulated, that are symptomatic, maybe in dire symptomatic shape, but also who are 
have been ascertained by public health to be contacts to known cases, in which case we can try to snap transmission networks. But um, so, you know, it's an opportunity to just say, you know, right now, yeah, who's being tested are people that we decide, not we the lab, but the public health community decide really need that test. Okay. When, when you, you said you've tested like 600-something people, um, and we have about, what, 50 or 60 confirmed cases right now, I think, in the state. Um, when you get a confirmed case, what do you do? Do you call somebody or? Like, well, what do you, what these are like? diagnostic laboratory tests, and the laws are unambiguous, very, very clear about um, how a diagnostic lab test is reported. Whoever ordered that test, and in Nevada that would be a clinician, uh, they get that test result for their patient. And then if it's a positive test result, um, the public health will get that information. Um, in many cases, public health is ordering these lab tests, in which case they'll get the result, and we rely on the public health department to then share that with the patient. But laws are unambiguous. We test um, and give the results to clinicians. And it's really important that clinicians serve as intermediaries to these tests, you know, because the test results are sometimes complicated and they need to be interpreted by a doctor. Um, how many lab techs do you have uh, running tests right now? Right now we've recruited people from other parts of the lab and it's, uh, we probably have around six or seven people right now dedicated to this. Are, are there plans on bringing in more staff? Well, you're limited in a field like this by sometimes the equipment that you have. And um, so, yes, we do want to perhaps bring in more professional lab scientists. But um, right now, um, we're doing pretty well with what we've got, but it might come to that. Again, I can't say for certain because we're const we have been so far um, shuffling around our staff and trying to decide how many shifts we can get going running this test. So I can't say exactly that we're going to bring in more people, but we'll see. Have you looked into bringing in more equipment? Yeah, we are. Um, so the biggest thing is dollars. And so, you know, as long as the dollars arrive to support this, there is equipment that could be brought in that would support our effort to test. And we are looking into some equipment that the FDA has recently deemed uh, as effective for this. And if we can get some more equipment in here, our bandwidth or throughput for testing should expand quite a lot. Um, what kind of hours are you guys working? You said you're working a lot. Well, right now we're going pretty full tilt. You know, we've got people coming in at five in the morning and we have people staying until well into the night. And if the volume of testing continues to come in, we may have to push that into the early morning hours. But right now, it's into the well into the night and coming in at around 5 in the morning. But, uh, you know, like I said, we might just have to go to a 24-7. But um, you know, we've been working every weekend doing this. But whatever it takes, you know, it's, it's, we're not going to, you know, we're going to do what, whatever it takes to try to maintain the test volumes that are coming in. Are, are, just like a personal question, are you guys doing okay mentally? You know, how, how's spirits? Well, thank you for asking. Um, you know, any endeavor that requires effort outside normal work hours can create a little confusion and dismay. But I have to commend our staff to a person that they recognize the importance of what they're doing, and they're taking this effort and um, really doing an excellent, doing very well in terms of attitude and in terms of physical health and mental health. And so, you know, how sustainable is something like this? You can never tell, but as of right now, our staff are doing very well. Thank you for asking that, Joey. <laughs> yeah. Um, are, are you guys doing any extra things to keep safe from this, or, or is it the same safety precautions that you would normally use? 
That's a really good question because um, it doesn't come up very often. But um, this organism comes into our lab in the form of a human specimen. And we treat that at what's called a biosafety level two level. And there are four biosafety levels. Four would be what you see in the Hollywood movies and spacesuits, kind of. We have a BSL-3 facility here that we generally use for agents of bioterror or um, tuberculosis culture. This is biosafety level two. So it's not very different than many of the other organisms that we deal with. And we, so we work using no um, nothing really not even really, I would say categorically nothing different than any other biosafety level two organism um, that we would deal with. Just talking about more public health stuff, what should people do first if they think they have symptoms? Like, what's the first thing that they should do? Well, I think um, you really you should ask a doctor that. Um, you know, if, if you're if it's a, the severity of the symptoms really matters here, because keep in mind, the symptoms that we're talking about are caused by a really wide range of very common organisms. So it really benefits the entire community and the entire response for people to ascertain very carefully how re really how well or how badly do you feel. Because if it's just the sniffles, it's, the probability is extremely high that you have uh, something like a rhinovirus or you know what we a cold virus, let's say. Um, and you know, if you're really really unwell, you have to go to emergency room or go see your doctor, of course. And that's probably the moment when a test might occur. But I, it really is more for a clinician to answer. But I would say you know gauge your symptoms carefully and make sure that we're not overreacting. Um, do you expect this to get better anytime soon? Or do you expect it to get worse and then better? It's a very difficult question, and it's not one that I seek to necessarily you know, provide an answer to. And, and my job is to test people. Um, should I say whether it's going to get worse or it's going to get better? I will say this. The actions that are being taken by public health and by laboratories and by clinicians and also by the public are all the right thing to do to get, make this get better. So we're in uncharted waters here in terms of asking people to social distance and not go out and to close businesses. And I know I went at length about this before, but it's an integral part to your answer because I can't look into a crystal ball and say whether it's going to get better or worse. But there is every, honestly, every single reason to believe that if we do these things, and if we hold tight to these recommendations about social distancing and we manage our resources properly by not you know, necessarily going and using medical resources when we shouldn't be, then there's every reason to believe this is going to get better. All right, so we are here with Paul Enos, the CEO of the Nevada Trucking Association, and we're also here with reporter Michelle Rundells, and we're uh, we're talking about kind of we're all in uncharted territory right now with the with the coronavirus, and we're all social distancing, and, and we're all at home right now. We're doing this over uh, over Zoom. Well, so hey Joey, I will let you know the Nevada Trucking Association. I am here in our office. We are open for business, socially distancing ourselves. Uh, I've got. You know, other employees who are working downstairs, but we're here to serve our members throughout this unchartered time. Yeah, thanks so much for being here, Paul. Um, I think we're all grateful that the trucking industry is trucking along and bringing us food to the grocery stores. Um, but of course, you know, this is one of the most scary 
parts of all of this is, is the business closures and the fact that people are worried, am I going to be able to go get milk and eggs, you know, when I go to the grocery store? Uh, I went yesterday, picked up some stuff from the grocery outlet, but it was, you, you could see anxiety on people's faces um, when they didn't find milk there, when the eggs were being rationed. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, um, what are you seeing in terms of, uh, should we be concerned about these empty shelves? So we, we shouldn't be concerned because we have plenty of food in the supply chain. We have plenty of supplies in the supply chain. We have plenty of toilet paper out there in the supply chain. The issue is, how do we get it from the manufacturers, the warehouses, the distribution centers into our grocery stores? So this weekend, um, I went into the weekend thinking, oh my gosh, we are at Christmas level shopping habits, which we usually start preparing for in August with our retail partners and uh, the, the trucking companies. So it takes us a while to get ready for that big uptick. This was um, greater than Christmas and there was no planning. I mean, it was, it, was, it was almost overnight. We had a month and a half of inventory and things like sugar, flour, salt, rice, beans that was wiped out in Las Vegas in four days. So what has happened with all of this panic buying is it has put such a strain on the supply chain. It takes us time to make sure that, you know, it's not that we have a shortage, but it does the supply chains people, you know, it's people that are manufacturing those facilities, those, those, um, things that we need that are moving them into the warehouse facilities. It's our truckers that are moving them. It's folks at the retail outlets who are stocking shelves. So it takes time to do all that. And of course the clerks and the, the janitors, the folks that are cleaning those stores now, uh, extra hard to make sure that, you know, we can shop in a place that's, that's safe to our health. Um, that has really been the strain that has caused. So on Friday, first time, first time in the history of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, we saw a nationwide suspension of hours of service rules. Truck drivers, if you're a truck driver out there and listening to it, you know what that is. Uh, but for you and I, every day, every day for a truck driver, takes they, they have an 11-hour drive clock and they have a 14-hour total day clock. With this huge demand, it was becoming very difficult to be able to provide all of those things, not just in our grocery stores, but things like diagnostic kits. Uh, I got a call, Jaron Hildebrand used to work for me, uh, Nevada Trucking Association for eight years. He's now running the Nevada Medical Society. He called me on Friday and he said, Paul, we are having issues with driver hours of service rules with our carriers to bring the test kits from all over the state to the state lab in Reno. And at that time, we hadn't issued a federal order yet, uh, a very specific federal order in, term of those, in terms of those hours of service rule suspensions. So I was able to get that information in to the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. And when you look at that declaration, you see medical kits, diagnostic kits, um, as one of the things that they suspended. So really, it's kind of neat, Michelle, that we have all the folks in the supply chain, in the medical industry, the healthcare industry, that are communicating with us uh, what their needs are. Um, I'm also communicating with 
folks in different industries to let them know what our needs are. We, we didn't have gloves. And you can imagine truck drivers who, you know, are driving, who are meeting folks, you know, at docks and warehouses, you know, they want to make sure that they are safe and they're sanitary too. Um, the wind provided us with gloves to give truck drivers. So it has really been neat to see how the whole business community has come together to work for our members to try to address this issue. Paul, you mentioned the hours of service. Obviously, the truckers are very familiar with that. Can you explain what I'm happens? I'm sorry. When yeah, I know. I started limitation. to. I started to, and then I like went off on a tangent. I apologize. So, okay, every every day, a truck driver they have 11 hours drive time on the clock, 14 hours on duty time. Then they have to stop. What we have seen with this huge demand is lines of trucks miles miles long in some places. We saw this. Um, in Henderson at a Smith's distribution center where you just had this huge line of, of big rigs. So they are that, that day is getting burned up waiting to be loaded or unloaded at these distribution centers. So to help meet the demands of all of us, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration suspended those rules. Should we be concerned if we're having suspended hours of service that people might be driving drowsy or, or in unsafe conditions? So we are required as a trucking industry to provide an equivalent level of safety for our drivers that we would have when these hours of service rules are in effect. If a driver is tired, they say they're tired, that trucking company is required to give them 10 hours off for them to get rest. So I, I want to assure the public that safety is paramount for our industry. It's something that we care about more than anything, because if you're not moving freight safely, the freight may not, it, you know, not just the, the freight may not get there, but you know, you may hurt somebody on the road, your driver may not come home. So it's something we're always concerned about. We're concerned uh, even more so with these new demands on our industry. So our folks are out there, they are watching, making sure that people aren't fatigued, making sure that you know we are safe on the road. I was, I was driving just yesterday and I noticed that there was very few people on the road other than truckers. Have you guys noticed that there are fewer people? Have, you, have your truckers told you that? Yeah, I, I've, I've noticed that myself and you know, I've noticed the trucks and, but you know, then again, Joey, that's something I'm always noticing, right? <laughs> so, um, no, I have noticed, yes, there is a lot less traffic. I, I'm looking at it, my parking lot at my office right now. And I think there's three vehicles. Paul, um, something the retail association of Nevada brought up, uh, when we talked to them recently was that with the coronavirus outbreak in China, that disrupted things, um, manufacturing over there, and, and there were shortages of supplies and other things that were affected. Um, of course, it sounds like the trucks are moving, but what about factories and you know chicken processing plants, all these kinds of things that kind of keep our shelves full? So all of those things in our supply chain are actually those warehouses for our food, they're, they're filled. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal first part of this month, they talked about a glut in meat because we weren't exporting chicken and beef and pork to China because of the coronavirus outbreak. So we actually had a glut of meat that resulted in a shortage of cold storage space, of freezer space. So, you know, I want to assure folks that we do have that food. We do have that product out there, toilet paper. You know, we, we make toilet paper right here in America. 
uh, Oxnard, um, California has a big facility that runs 24 seven. Um, there's not a peak demand on toilet paper. Toilet paper has a you know, fairly consistent, uh, there's a fairly consistent demand for it, except, you know, strangely in something like this. So, you know, to assure folks, you know, there are some things, you know, like disinfectant wipes and masks, those things are more difficult to, to get. So it has affected some things. How confident are you that we have enough truckers? Um, because correct me if I'm wrong, but there's sometimes a shortage. Uh, yeah, there, there the is, there is a shortage of truck drivers um, today. Uh, I was watching old truck driving ads from 45 years ago. There was a shortage back then too. And that's something that we have been very cognizant of. You know, it's, it's tough to get people to think about truck driving as a career when folks start thinking about careers. Usually that's something that we do when we're leaving high school. We've heard, um, you know, some doomsday predictions about how, how many people could be sickened by the coronavirus. Are you concerned that your workforce is really going to be um, affected by that and people are going to have to be off for 14 days in quarantine or, or worse? So that definitely is something that we are concerned about. We are concerned about always about the health of our drivers. The truck driver average age in this country is over 50 years old. So we do have a lot of folks in that vulnerable population. That's why, you know, it was I was working so hard earlier this week to find PPE for our drivers, to find gloves, to find uh, sanitizing wipes. Um, you know, some some folks even looking for masks. So you know, those are things that we are trying to trying to get to ensure that we have supply chain safety and supply chain continuity. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for uh, your time, Paul. I know you're you're very busy at this uh, you know crisis moment, so we appreciate you giving a little bit of reassurance about what's going on. Uh, well, hey, thank you, well. and hey, I I have no idea when this is going to end, but you know I do know someday it'll end, and I'm looking forward to that party. <laughs> yes, it'll be a good one. All right, all right. Thank Thanks, you so Michelle. Much for Thanks, your time. Joey. Thanks, Paul. All right, and so we are at the last segment of the podcast. Um, normally, this is um, like a, a fun segment, but you know, in light of the, the recent events of the coronavirus and everything, it's been uh, quite the week for a lot of people. And we uh, we've created at the Indie a resource guide, and it's headed up by our intern Kristen Leonard. And Kristen's here with me. How's it going, Kristen? Hi, it's good. Well, as good as it can be at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And so, can you kind of explain to me what this uh, resource guide is for people that don't know? Yeah, so the resource guide um, is constantly up on our website. It's next to our live blog link for our coronavirus resources. Um, it basically has information on where people can get things like meals, um, online access to services uh, for welfare, unemployment, the DMV. There are information on what hotlines and shelters are still operating for domestic violence, resources for online AA meetings. It's pretty much anything we could think of that people might need updated information on with the pandemic and social distancing, closing a lot of businesses and making a lot of information more complicated to access. 
Yeah, and, and just to let everyone know, don't worry, we are doing this over Zoom. We are, we are not in the same room. We're all at least six feet apart, if not thousands of miles apart. <laughs> um, but um, can, can you kind of explain to me, what, what are some of the major resources that you're seeing? Like, what are some of the best resources that people can uh, find on this? Yeah, so I think the school meals is a really big thing. Uh, we have a list by county where parents can bring their children to access um, meals being served through, um, it's, it's through a variety of different resources, both the Nevada Department of Agriculture and, and through different nonprofits in both Southern and Northern Nevada. We have it broken down, like I said, by county, and it has lists of different schools with their addresses and also different places like gas stations that have food sites. So we have additional resources for stores that are increasing their accessibility for seniors. Um, stores like Smith's and Target have senior shopping hours, and Smith's is also eliminating their fee for curbside pickup for senior citizens. I do tweet out, in addition to what's updated in the guide, sometimes individual restaurants that are offering services. And, and what is your Twitter so that people can follow you and, yes, uh, and get those it's, updated? It's at KLeonardNV. And right, it is cool. L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right. So are there sections too on, on like healthcare resources and, and um, in, insurance resources for people that are either, you know, get, going out of work or, or, or looking for those kind of things? Yes, we have um, a section on the special enrollment period for health insurance. We also have information um, for those in Southern Nevada about a dentist that's offering free dental care for children of people who have been laid off. Um, and there's a section about filing for unemployment benefits that links to a lot of video resources and um, information from the governor and from online websites. So I've been pulling... Um, I've been pulling updates for the resource guide, both from information that I'm finding and from information supplied by the rest of the Indie team. But another really helpful resource has been organizations that are emailing me directly to let me know that they are still functioning. Um, for example, Safe Nest in Southern Nevada emailed me to let me know that their crisis hotline is still going 24 seven um, and kind of requested that that information be added to the guide. So if anyone does have organizations or services that they think would be helpful to spread that information to other people, um, I always welcome emails and Twitter DMs. All right, cool. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for putting together this, uh, this list and thank you for chatting with me today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Dr. Mark Pandori, Paul Enos, Michelle Rendells, and Kristen Leonard for being on the pod this week. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen. If you'd like to donate to us, you can find the Support Our Work page on the NevadaIndependent.com. We greatly appreciate anything you can afford to give during these trying times. And if you have comments, criticism, praise, or any questions about anything going on in the state right now, you can email me at joey at the nvindy.com or jacob at jacob at the nvindy.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at the nvindy.com. People with Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis, here with host Joey Lovato. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>